Before we begin our study this morning, I want to have a special prayer for this uh, project with uh, Final Generation magazine, this special issue. I believe that now is the time that people need to know what the true issues are. And the true issue is whether we will, are going to receive the seal of God or the mark of the beast and to prepare for that time. And so I have uh, read actually a couple of the articles in this uh, magazine and I looked at the titles and subtitles of the other articles and it covers all of the bases in a simple way, not complicated, in a very easy to understand way. And uh, so I want to pray for this project and I want to ask the Lord's blessing upon it. So I invite you to bow your heads reverently as I pray for the project as well as for our study this morning. Father in heaven, we come before your awesome throne. We come boldly because we come in the name of Jesus. We thank you, Father, for the blessings that we have experienced in the course of this weekend. We thank you for all of the blessings that you have poured out abundantly upon us. And Father, as we come before your throne this morning, we place this project before you. Especially I ask that the 150,000 copies that still need to be printed, they will be printed soon and the project can move forward. I ask that you will help these magazines to come into the hands of those who are sincerely seeking for truth. And that then you will use them to reach other people with the truth for this time. And so we ask that you will bless this magazine, that you will bless this project, and that many souls may be saved in your kingdom as a result of this outreach. Bless all of those who work at Final Generation Magazine, that it might be a blessing that you will provide the financial resources for this publication to be extended like the leaves of autumn. We thank you, Father, for the privilege of prayer, and we ask that as we study your word, that your Holy Spirit will be present with us to instruct us and to empower us to let everyone know where everything is leading so that everyone can prepare for the incredible events that soon will explode upon the world scene. We thank you for the promise of your presence, and we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. The development of history is similar to a game of chess. I want, to want you to imagine a game of chess. On one side of the board is seated God. On the other side of the board is seated Satan. And the movement of the pawns are the movements of history. So God tells Satan, okay, move. And Satan makes a move in history. God says, okay, now my turn. So then God moves. And Satan scratches his head and says, ooh, I wish that I'd known that he was going to do that. But then Satan looks for a way to, to make a move to counteract that move. So 
Ellen White refers to history as the play and counterplay of history. But you know, God has an advantage over Satan. And that is that Satan has to guess how God is going to move. But God already knows all of the moves that Satan is going to make. So there's no possibility that God can lose. Let's read Isaiah 46, the passage that uh, has basically been the theme of my presentations here this weekend. Isaiah 46 and verses 9 through 11. God's plan will be fulfilled. It says there in verse 9, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. So God's plan will succeed. Even though it might appear that Satan is in control of world events, God is going to have the last word. Now in our study this morning, we're going to look at a prophecy that we've studied many times before. It's probably the most preached topic in an evangelistic series. We're going to take another look at Daniel chapter 2. You say, oh no, we already know all of that. Well, let's study it and see if maybe we can gain some new insights into this magnificent chapter. We're going to see in the course of the chapter that God is in control of world events. And sometimes we just go to the um, image and we talk about the image and we forget that there's half of the chapter that deals with events before the image appears in the story. So let's go to Daniel chapter 2 and verse 29 and notice something very interesting there. Is God able to read people's thoughts? Can God read thoughts? Yes, he can. Can Satan read thoughts? Satan cannot read thoughts. So notice chapter 2 and verse 29. Daniel is speaking to the king and he says, As for you, O king, thoughts came to your mind while on your bed about what would come to pass after this. So Nebuchadnezzar is thinking about the future of his kingdom. And then it says, And he who reveals secrets has made known to you what will be. God knew what Nebuchadnezzar was thinking when he went to bed. So God says, I know what you're thinking, now I'm going to give you a dream that will answer your thoughts. But then God performed something else. When the king woke up, he forgot the dream. God gave him a case of amnesia. Notice Daniel chapter 2 in verse 3. Then the king gave the command to call the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came and stood before the king, and the king said to them, I have had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to know the dream. 
he couldn't remember his dream. You know, some people think that uh, Nebuchadnezzar was simply uh, acting like he didn't know his dream uh, to test his magicians and his astrologers. But Ella White makes clear in the book, The Sanctified Life, page 35, that God barred Nebuchadnezzar from remembering his dream for a specific purpose. Notice what that statement says. The king knew that if they could really tell the interpretation, they could tell the dream as well. The Lord had in his providence <clears throat> given Nebuchadnezzar this dream and had caused the particulars to be forgotten. So who would led the king to forget? You know, have you ever had a dream where you wake up and you say, man, I had that dream and I can't remember what it was. Well, it wasn't Nebuchadnezzar just forgetting the dream. God led him to forget the dream. And so, it says the Lord had in his providence given Nebuchadnezzar this dream and had caused the particulars to be forgotten. While the fearful impression was left upon his mind. Now here comes the reason why God barred the dream from his mind. In order to expose the pretensions of the wise men of Babylon, the monarch was very angry and threatened. So the purpose for God giving the dream and then leading the king to forget the dream was because God knew that the king was going to call all the experts of Babylon and they were going to be unmasked as charlatans. And that's exactly what happened. The king, according to what we just read, he gave a command to call the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So that's exactly what God expected. Now what's interesting is that when these experts, so-called, came before the king, twice they told Nebuchadnezzar, Okay, king, tell us the dream, and we'll give you the interpretation of the dream. Twice. And the king says, No, you misunderstand me. I don't want to know the interpretation of the dream only. I want to know the dream. Now let's read Jan Daniel chapter 2 and verses 10 and 11. They're, they're going to say to the king, what you're asking is totally unreasonable. It says there, the Chaldeans answered the king and said, there is not a man on earth who can tell the king's matter. Therefore no king, lord, or ruler has ever asked such things of any magician astrologer or Chaldean. It is a difficult thing that the king requests, and there is no other who can tell it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. What they're saying is the gods conceal. The gods, they keep secrets. Now these individuals claimed to have a direct line of communication with the gods. That's why they claim they can interpret dreams, but now they're saying, listen, the gods keep secrets. Their dwelling is not with flesh. You know, in contrast, in the Bible, God is not a God who conceals, God is a God who reveals. You know, this passage that I just read is very similar to John chapter 1 and verse 14. Notice the key words. 
The gods don't dwell with flesh. Notice John chapter 1 and verse 14. And the Word, who is God, right? The Word was God, it says in the first few verses. And the Word became what? Flesh and what? There you have the key words. And dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The gods so-called conceal, but God reveals. In this case, by sending Jesus Christ. So now it's Satan's turn to move. You see, God knows what the king has been thinking. God gives him a dream to answer his concerns. Then God leads him to forget the dream because he wants to unmask the wise men of Babylon. So Satan now says, okay, you played, now it's my turn. Now, Satan had seen that Daniel and his friends were a potential problem for the future. Because in chapter 1 they had been faithful to God. And Satan says, these individuals are trouble. And so now Satan influences the king to give a death decree against the wise men of Babylon, among whom were Daniel and his friends. So Satan is saying, you unmasked my experts? Well, I'm going to kill your young men. Notice what it says in Daniel chapter 2 verses 12 and 13. For this reason the king was angry and very furious and gave the command to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree went out and they began killing the wise men and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. So Satan says, okay, you unmask my guys, but I'm going to have Daniel and his friends killed along with all of the other experts that were supposed to tell me the dream and its interpretation. But you know what happens? Instead of killing Daniel and his friends, this experience brings Daniel and his friends to prominence in the kingdom to play a very important role. Notice Daniel chapter 2 verses 48 and 49. This is after the experience comes to an end. Then the king promoted Daniel <laughs> and gave him many great gifts. And he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief administrator over all the wise men of Babylon. Also Daniel petitioned the king and he set Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of, of, the province of Babylon but Daniel sat at the gate of the king. Instead of destroying them, now they became prominent in the kingdom. Do you see the play and counterplay that's going on here? Who is in control? God is in control. See, there's things happening behind the scenes. The history that we see is only a small sliver of history. The real history is being written in the invisible world. It's kind of like an iceberg in the North Atlantic that floats peacefully on the water. What is the dangerous part of the iceberg? It's not the part that you can see, it's the part that you can't see. And so it is with history. Let me give you an example. In Revelation chapter 12, it tells us that the dragon persecuted the woman for 1,260 days, 
And then it also says, for time, times, and the dividing of time. So the dragon is persecuting the woman, which is the church, for 1260 days, or time, times, and the dividing of time. But when you go to Daniel 7, it says that the little horn persecutes the saints for time, times, and the dividing of time. And in Revelation chapter 13, it says the beast persecutes the saints for time, times, and the dividing of time. That shows that the little horn, which represents the papacy, and the beast, which represents the same entity, are actually used by what? By the dragon. So behind the scenes is the dragon. Also, the birth of Christ. You know, if you read Matthew chapter 2 and verse 16, it simply tells us that Herod got angry and he had all of the male children killed. Any historian could have written that. It happened in the realm of Jerusalem. It happened because Herod uh, considered that a rival was being born, and therefore he has the male children killed. Any newspaper editor could have written that. But when you go to Revelation chapter 12, it says the dragon stood next to the woman to devour her child when he was born. So there's a history behind history, and that's what we're finding in this story. There's, there's a conflict going on behind the scenes. Now, the experts of Babylon, the magicians, the Chaldeans, the astrologers, they determined what was going to happen in the future by looking at the signs of the zodiac, by reading the palm of the hand, etc. But God showed that he used a different method of communicating his truth. Notice Amos chapter 3 and verse 7. This a, you don't even have to look it up. It says, Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. See, so God, does God reveal secrets? Yes. What do the pagan gods do? Oh, they conceal secrets. They hide it from human beings. But God does nothing in history without revealing his secret to a servant of the prophets. By the way, do you know why our ministry is called Secrets Unsealed? It has a biblical foundation. This verse is the basis for secrets. And unsealed has to do with the little book that is unsealed at the time of the end. So that's the reason why we adopted secrets unsealed. Because God is not a God that conceals what's going to happen. God is a God that reveals what is going to take place, what is going to happen. And so, let's go to Daniel chapter 2 verses 17 through 19 and see how God speaks to human beings. It's not by reading the palm of the hand. It's not by going to an astrologer. It's not by any of those means, these occultic methods... God has a very simple way of revealing his truth. It says in verse 17, Then Daniel went to his house and made the decision known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, that they might look at the stars, read the palm of the king's hand. No, that they might seek what? Mercies from the God of heaven, concerning this what? Ah, this secret. So that Daniel and his companions might not perish 
with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the secret was revealed. <laughs> Interesting. The secret was what? Revealed to whom? To Daniel in a night vision. That means a dream. So Daniel blessed the God of heaven. God does not reveal the future by the crystal ball, the signs of the zodiac, psychics, channelers, and necromancers. God reveals the course of history when we ask him for wisdom in prayer. Let's go now to Daniel chapter 2 verses 27 and 28. Daniel did not claim any credit. He doesn't come and say to the king, oh yeah, I'm able to do it, O king. He gives all of the honor and the glory to God who revealed the secret. It says in verse 20, uh, actually 26 through 28, the king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel doesn't say, of course I can. Listen to what he says. Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, the secret, notice the secret theme that we have all the way through this, the secret which the king has demanded, the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, and the soothsayers cannot declare to the king. But there is a God in heaven who reveals what? Do you see the number of times the word secret is used here? Who reveals secrets. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. So let's review what happens in this first half of the chapter. God reads the mind of Nebuchadnezzar when he went to bed. God gave him a dream to answer his concerns. God veiled the dream from his mind. In this way he unmasked the false, the charlatans that claimed to be able to communicate with the gods. So now Satan plays and he works to destroy Daniel and his friends. But instead of that, God brings them to prominence in the kingdom. God reveals the secret to Daniel. And the lives of Daniel and his friends is spared. And Daniel gives the credit to God. And then God reveals the future history of the world. He is able to tell the end from the beginning. Who is in control in all this chapter? Is Satan in control? No, Satan plays. But who counteracts all of the moves of Satan? God. Now let's go and read the dream. Daniel chapter 2, verse 31 to 35. Daniel 2, 31 to 35. I want you to imagine this, that you know, get the picture in your mind of what we're reading, the sequence that we're reading. By the way, this is the prime historicist prophecy of the Bible. As Seventh-day Adventists, we are historicists. Basically, that means that the great chain prophecies of the Bible begin to fulfill in the day when the prophet wrote. And then you have a sequence of events, one right after the other, culminating with the setting up of Christ's everlasting kingdom. So that's historicism. We're able to know where the prophecy begins, time-wise, where it's going to end, 
and all of the sequential events in between. And so we have a prime example of historicism in Daniel chapter 2. And by the way, Daniel 7 amplifies it. You have also Revelation 12. The other chain prophecies use this method of interpreting Bible prophecy. So notice Daniel chapter 2 verse 31. You, O king, were watching, and behold a great image. So imagine a great image, a statue. This great image, whose splendor was excellent, stood before you, and its form was awesome. This image's head was of fine gold. So remember the metals. The head is made of what? Fine gold. Its chest and arms of silver. Its belly and thighs of bronze. And then it continues, its legs of iron. Its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. Do you have the picture? Gold, silver, bronze, iron, and when you get to the feet, you don't even have pure iron. You have iron and clay. But the vision doesn't end there. The dream doesn't end there. Verse 34. You watched while a stone was cut out without hands. That's an important detail. We'll come to it later. The stone, the stone was actually cut out of a mountain. And it was without hands. We'll come back to that. So you watch while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So you have several symbols. Gold, silver, bronze, iron, iron and clay, a stone, and a mountain. Now if we can interpret the symbols we'll be able to understand the secret that God wanted to share. So we need to interpret the symbols. Fortunately, the symbols are interpreted in the second part after the vision, after the dream, is mentioned by Daniel. Let's just review what these metals represent. What does the gold head represent? We all know it represents the kingdom of what? Of Babylon. You say, well, how do we know that? Well, let's go to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2 gives us the beginning point. See, this is historicism. Daniel chapter 2 gives us when the prophecy begins. It begins with the head of gold, and it tells us what the head of gold is. Notice Daniel 2, verses 37 and 38. You, O king, are a king of kings. Why was Nebuchadnezzar a king of kings? Well, he had greater armies. He was more intelligent. He had better weapons. Is that the reason? No. You, O king, are a king of kings, for the God of heaven has given you a kingdom. Power. 
strength, and glory. So who, who determined that Nebuchadnezzar would be on the throne? God. See, uh, the whole chapter is about God being in control. Verse 38. And wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heaven, he has given them into your hand and has made you ruler over them all. You are this head of gold. What does head of gold represent? Well, it says you are the head, Nebuchadnezzar, but Nebuchadnezzar is king of which kingdom? Babylon. And we know that when, when it says you are the head of gold, it refers to his kingdom, because in the very next verse it says, but after you shall arise another kingdom. Correct? So the first is a kingdom, and then you have another kingdom. So the head of gold represents Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom, the kingdom of Babylon. By the way, Babylon ruled from the year 605 B.C. to the year 539 B.C. So does the book of Daniel identify the first uh, kingdom? Does it identify what the head of gold represents? Very clearly. But then notice verse 39. But after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours. Now what was the kingdom that came after Babylon? We say Medo-Persia. Do you know that the book of Daniel itself tells us that the next kingdom was Medo-Persia? All you have to do is go to Daniel chapter 5. Remember the handwriting on the wall? Your kingdom is taken away and given to the Medes and Persians. So what is the next kingdom that conquered Babylon? Daniel itself tells us that it was Medo-Persia. You don't have to go to history books. All you have to do is follow the sequence. So the second kingdom is Medo-Persia. And Medo-Persia existed from 539 to 331 BC. So we're moving along in history. Then you have another kingdom. Notice what it continues saying in verse 39, but after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours, then another, a third kingdom of bronze. Now what was the kingdom that came after the Medes and Persians? Greece. You don't even have to go to the history books to determine that. Daniel itself tells us that the next kingdom was Greece. Not in Daniel chapter 2, but in Daniel chapter 8. It speaks, Daniel chapter 8 speaks about a ram, clearly identified as the Medes and Persians. And then a he-goat comes, has one notable horn on its head, which is Alexander the Great, its first king, and it comes and it attacks the ram, and it finishes off the ram. What was the kingdom that finished off the kingdom of Medo-Persia? Greece. So Daniel 8 identifies the third kingdom as Greece. And then it continues saying in verse 40, And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything, and like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. It's no coincidence that uh, the... Uh, famous uh, historian 
Edward Gibbon wrote a book titled The Rise and Decline of the Roman Empire, and he referred to Rome as the Iron Monarchy of Rome. Because the iron represents the kingdom of Rome. You don't even have to go to history for that. All you have to do is go to the Gospels. What kingdom was ruling in the days of Christ? Rome. So the Bible itself tells us that the first kingdom is Babylon. The second kingdom is Medo-Persia. The third kingdom is Greece. And the fourth kingdom is Rome. We've moved from 605 to 539 B.C., from 539 to 331 B.C., we've moved from 331 B.C. to 168 B.C., and we've moved from 168 B.C. to 476 A.D. This is historicism. You can follow the trajectory. It's very simple. But now we have the last part that is mentioned here. Notice verse 41. Whereas you saw the feet and toes, partly of what kind of clay? Potter's clay, that's an important detail. Of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. Which kingdom? The fourth kingdom. The kingdom shall be divided. Yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay. Now, let's unpack this. Because this is something, you know, we usually just say, you know, the ten toes represent the ten kingdoms of Europe into which the Roman Empire was divided, and that's it. Let's notice several interesting details here. There's more to the story. I believe that the ten toes do represent the ten kingdoms, but it's much broader in the end time. The ten kingdoms become globalized. They're not only centered in Western Europe, they're actually centered in the whole world, if you read Revelation chapter 17. Let's notice several interesting details. Did the iron already exist in the legs? Did the iron exist in the legs? Yes, the legs were of what? Iron. So let me ask you, does Rome in a certain sense continue in the feet? Yes. The iron of the legs continues where? In the feet. So is Rome going to continue in a certain sense in what the feet represent? Yes, but it's a different kind of Rome. It's not only a secular kingdom. It has something that is mingled with it. It's a different kind of Rome. So let me ask you, did the iron exist before the iron and clay? Yes. So is the clay then added to the feet? Are you following me or not? See, when we read this, we have to think. We have to ask the text questions. If the legs had iron and the feet have iron, that means that the clay must have been added later to the iron. What kind of clay was it? Important detail, potter's clay. Let me ask you, does iron have a legitimate function? Is iron valuable? Yes. 
Is potter's clay valuable? Does it have its legitimate function? Yes. When is it a problem? When the iron and the clay are mingled, they both become weak. Now let me ask you, is everything in Daniel 2 symbolic? Is the gold a symbol? Is the gold symbolic? Is the silver symbolic? Is the bronze symbolic? Is the iron symbolic? Is the stone symbolic? Is the mountain symbolic? So must the clay be symbolic too? Are you following the principle? The clay must also be symbolic. Because everything in Daniel chapter 2 is symbolic. Did you notice that, that the feet, there's going to be an element that's strong and there's going to be an element that is weak. What is the strong element? The iron. What is the weak element? The clay. Ellen White had a very interesting statement. In Great Controversy 581 she wrote, We shall soon see, and this is speaking about the future, we shall soon see and shall feel what the purpose of the Roman element is. What are we going to see soon? What the Roman, the purpose of the Roman element. What did she mean by Roman element? She meant that the church is going to use the power of the state, we're going to see this in a few moments, in order to persecute God's people. She finishes the statement by saying, whoever shall believe and obey the word of God will thereby incur reproach and persecution. You know, it's interesting that Jesus was actually killed by a coalition of church and state. They used the iron of Rome to kill Christ. Do you remember, uh, first of all, Jesus was taken before the Jewish Sanhedrin and he had a religious trial? Remember that? And they condemned him to death. But they had the problem, they as a church could not condemn him to death, they could not execute the death penalty. Whose help did they need? They needed the help of, of the iron of Rome. And so they had to go to whom? To Pilate, a ruler of Rome, and appealed to the iron of Rome to give a death decree against Christ. Let me ask you, is that the same thing that happened during the 1260 years? You know, you say the Roman Catholic Church slew millions of God's people. They say, no, we didn't. We didn't have any army. <laughs> How did the papacy destroy God's saints during the 1260 years? They did it by appealing to the rulers of Western Europe. The church, the clay, as we're going to see, we're going to prove it from the Bible and the spirit of prophecy, the clay appealed to the iron to persecute God's people. That is the Roman element. It's the church using the power of the state to persecute those who do not agree with the apostate church. 
And that's why Ellen White says we're going to soon feel what the purpose of the Roman element is, and then she explains what it means. Whoever shall believe and obey the word of God will thereby incur reproach and persecution. But the church will persecute through the power of the state. That's why the Seventh-day Adventist Church emphasizes so much that we need to keep the church and the state separate. She speaks of even, even a union in the slightest degree is a problem. Jesus made it clear. Render therefore to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Let me ask you, what do we owe to Caesar when it comes to finances? Taxes. Taxes. What do we owe the church or God in terms of finances? Our tithes. Would it be right to take the church's tithe and give it to Caesar? To kind of balance the budget? No. Would it be right for the church to take the money of Caesar and use it for church purposes? No. Ellen White said that the union of church and state to the slightest degree is not approved by God. So what is the meaning of the clay? I've said that the clay represents the church, the iron represents the power of the state to persecute God's people, the Roman element. Well, let's let the Bible explain it. Go with me to Jeremiah chapter 18 verses 1 to 6. Jeremiah chapter 18 and verses 1 through 6. This is speaking about Israel, God's people, God's church in the Old Testament. It says there, The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Arise and go down to the potter's house. Is that word potter in Daniel chapter 2? Yes. Go to the potter's house, and there I will cause you to hear my words. Then I went down to the potter's house, and there he was making something at the wheel. And the vessel that he made of clay, oh, is that mentioned in Daniel too? Yeah. The vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. Let's stop there for a moment. Jeremiah was a prophet just before the Babylonian captivity. The shattering of the, of the vessel, the vessel represents Israel. We're going to see it in a minute. And the shattering of the vessel is the Babylonian captivity. And the making of a new vessel represents restoration after the captivity. So notice what it says. Then I went down to the potter's house, and there he was making something at the wheel. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter, that is the Babylonian captivity. So he made it again into another vessel. That's the restoration after the captivity. As it seemed good to the potter to make. Now you say, is that the correct interpretation? Yes, it is. Notice verse 5. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter? What, does the, what did the potter's vessel represent? Israel. God's Old Testament church. O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter, says the Lord? Look, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. So what does a potter's clay represent here in this passage? It represents God's Old Testament church, Israel. 
So what does the clay represent? The church. You have the same terminology. Let's approach it from a different perspective. There's three perspectives. That's, that's the first. Let's approach it from another perspective. Go with me to Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7. It says there, and you say, what does this have to do with Daniel chapter 2? Because we usually use this for the state of the dead. But we're going to see by extension that it's very important to understand. And the Lord God formed man. What does the idea of form mean? It's actually a potter. We're going to see that in a moment. The Lord God formed man of the what? Of the dust of the ground. It was actually clay. It was wet dust. Because you can't form anything from dust. <laughs> it was wet dust. It was potter's clay. In a moment we'll see that. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground. And breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. The body began to function. All of the systems, all of the organs begin to function. Because the body of clay had the spirit. Now let's go to Isaiah 64 and verse 8. Well, you see that the dust was actually clay. And God formed man like a potter would form a vessel. It says there in Isaiah 64 verse 8, But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the what? We are the clay, and you are what? Our potter, and all we are the work of your hand. So God formed the body of man, so to speak, out of potter's clay, and then gave it the spirit of life, and then the body began to function with all of its systems and all of its organs. Now let me ask you, symbolically speaking, we're talking about symbols here, we're not talking about literal, we're, we're, we're taking the literal in order to explain the symbolic. What is the body of Christ, symbolically speaking? The bride. Well, yeah, the bride, but the, the church is the body of Christ. Let's read it, Colossians 1. Verse 18, Colossians chapter 1, verse 18. Now we're looking at the literal creation of man, and we're going to see what it represents symbolically. Colossians 1, verse 18. Speaking about Jesus, it says, He is the head of the what? Of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. So what is the body of Christ? The church. Now let me ask you, when the day of Pentecost came, was the body all together? Before that, there were body parts strewn all over the place, right? <laughs> Who's going to be the greatest? They were fighting among themselves. But what happened on the day of Pentecost? The body came together. Notice Acts chapter 2 and verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord united in one place. So the body parts all came together. But then what did the body need in order to begin functioning? 
What did the church need in order to be able to function? It was all united, but it needed something to begin to, for all of its all of the gifts of the spirit to begin functioning. What did it need? The spirit. Are you with me or not? Notice Acts chapter two, verses two through four. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues of, as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Let me ask you, did all parts of the body now start functioning? Fulfilling their role? Does the heart have a role? Yes. Does the, do the lungs have a role? Does the liver have a role? Yes, each one, when you receive the spirit of life, begins to function and to work in harmony with the body. Now notice what the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 and 13. For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so is Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. So symbolically speaking, the church is the body of Christ. And the Holy Spirit enters the body of Christ. And every gift in the church begins to function. Are you following me? So what does the clay represent? The clay represents the church, symbolically. Have you ever read Ezekiel chapter 37, all of the body parts strewn in the valley of the dry bones? That represents the Babylonian captivity. And the dry bones, actually, all of the body parts that are strewn in the valley represents the captivity, the fact that Israel was taken into captivity. But what happened after the captivity? All of the body parts came together. Have you ever read Ezekiel 37? All the body parts came together. But even after all the body parts came together, what was lacking? The spirit. So Ezekiel calls the spirit and the spirit comes into the body and the body lives. What does that all represent? We don't have to guess. Notice Ezekiel 37 and verses 10 and 11. The Bible itself tells us. So I prophesied as he commanded me and breath came into them and they lived and stood upon their feet an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are what? The whole house of Israel. They indeed say our bones are dry, our hope is lost, and we ourselves are cut off. In other words, we're in captivity. But God promises to restore the church represented by body parts. So what does the clay represent in Daniel chapter 2? It represents the church. Now listen, Revelation chapter 17 uses a different symbol to teach the same truth. You see, in Daniel chapter 2, it's the union of the iron and the clay, the union of church and state. 
Revelation chapter 17 tells us that it is the harlot who fornicates with the kings of the earth. Are you with me or not? So Revelation 17 uses a different symbol, but it means the same thing. The harlot, which is an apostate church, fornicates with the king of the earth. Now let me ask you, is the church supposed to be only clay? Yes. Is the iron supposed to be only iron? Yes. Where do you have the problem? When the iron and the clay are mingled. Then the church becomes what? Apostate. So in Revelation 17 what happens when the harlot fornicates with the kings of the earth? That is what? Apostasy. It's a different symbol but it means the same thing. Notice Revelation 17, 1 and 2. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot. What does a woman represent in prophecy? A church. A pure woman represents a pure church. A harlot woman represents an apostate church. What is the, how did she become a harlot? When she mingled. Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication. And the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. Now let's put the icing on the cake. Did Ellen White agree with, with what we've just studied? Did she agree that the clay represents the church and the iron represents the state? Well, that's where I got the idea to do the research that I shared with you just previously about Genesis 2 verse 7 and uh, Jeremiah chapter 16 and the Valley of the Dry Bones. Because if you look hard enough in the Bible, you'll always find what Ellen White wrote. And you know, sometimes I go to the Bible and I say, wow, you know, I don't really understand this. So let me go see what the Spirit of Prophecy says. Oh, it makes it absolutely clear. Sometimes I'll read something in the Spirit of Prophecy and say, where in the world did she get this from? Well, let's go to the Bible and try and find it. You always move from the spirit of prophecy to the Bible and the Bible to the spirit of prophecy. Never one or the other alone. Notice this remarkable statement. Volume 4 of the Bible Commentary, page 1168. We have come to a time when God's sacred work is represented by the feet of the image in which the iron was mixed with the miry clay. God has a people, a chosen people, whose discernment must be sanctified, who must not become unholy by laying upon the foundation wood, hay, and stubble. Every soul who is loyal to the commandments of God will see that the distinguishing feature of our faith is the seventh day Sabbath. If the government would honor the Sabbath, and we need to understand what this means. It, she's not saying that the government should mandate the observance of the Sabbath. What she's saying is that the government should allow people, according to the First Amendment, to keep the Sabbath. And not make laws that forbid the keeping of the Sabbath and mandate the keeping of Sunday. So when she says here, if the government would honor the Sabbath... She's not talking about the, the government making legislation to honor the Sabbath. She's saying that they're going to live according to the First Amendment, where it cannot establish 
the observance of the Sabbath, nor forbid the free exercise of the Sabbath. So once again, if the government would honor the Sabbath as God has commanded, it would stand in the strength of God and in defense of the faith once delivered to the saints. Our government would be strong if it kept a separation between church and state and respected the First Amendment to the Constitution, which guarantees freedom of speech, which is in perilous danger right now. She continues, but statesmen, what are statesmen? Government officials, but statesmen, politicians, but statesmen will uphold the spurious Sabbath and will mingle their religious faith with the observance of this child of the papacy placing it above the Sabbath which the Lord has sanctified and blessed, setting it apart for man to keep holy as a sign between him and his people to a thousand generations. And now comes the key portion of the statement. The mingling of churchcraft and statecraft is represented by the iron and the clay. I think that's pretty clear. Once again, the mingling of churchcraft and statecraft is represented by the iron and the clay. This union is weakening, weakening all the power of the churches. The investing the church, this investing the church with the power of the state will bring, bring bad results. Men have almost passed the point of God's forbearance. They have invested their strength in politics. That is the politicians and have united with the papacy. But the time will come when God will punish those who have made void his law, and their evil work will recoil upon themselves. As Adventists, we must speak up against any interference of the state in the church, and the church in the state. That's why we're against uh, the religious right. Because they have to use the power of the state to, to enforce religion. And the left, you know, they don't want religion at all. You know, in, in Bible times, in the times of Christ, the Pharisees, the conservatives, and the Sadducees, the liberals, all decided to join forces to kill Christ. So don't say, oh, our great enemy is the left, or our great enemy is the right. Ultimately, both will unite against God's people. Not time to be preaching politics. <laughs> we just need to explain these things to people from the Bible. And then they can look out and they can see it for themselves. You say, yeah, it makes sense. It's happening before our eyes. Now we must move on to the mountain. <laughs> Not literally. We must understand what the mountain represents. Because the stone hits the feet of the image, destroys all of the kingdoms, and it becomes a mountain. What does the mountain represent? Well, let's go to Daniel chapter 2, 34 and 35, our scripture reading. It says, You watch while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay, broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And now notice, and the stone that struck the image became a great mountain, and it did what? It filled the whole earth. 
So what happened with the mountain? The mountain uh, grew and it filled the whole earth. Now what does that mean? What, does, what is the mountain? Well, fortunately, in Daniel 2, you have not only the vision, but you have the interpretation of the vision. Every part has been interpreted, right? So there must be an interpretation of the mountain as well. In Daniel, Daniel 2, verse 44, you have the interpretation of what the mountain means. It says, And in the days of these kings, that is of the Tosh, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms and shall stand forever. What does the mountain represent? It represents Christ's kingdom. Which is going to stand what? It's going to stand forever. What does without hands mean? You know, you know politicians these days, and even many church members, they, they think that they're going to establish Christ's kingdom, kingdoms, kingdom on earth through legislation. They say, that's a, you know, we have to bring the United States back to what it used to be. And they think that the way that to do it is through legislation. In other words, they believe that they're going to establish Christ's kingdom on earth by human methods. The expression without hands simply means that it's not of this creation. It is not a kingdom that is established by men, but by God. Notice a couple of verses that help us understand this. Hebrews 9 verse 11. Hebrews 9 and verse 11. Just bear with me, we're almost finished. It says there, speaking about the heavenly sanctuary, But Christ came as a high priest of the good things to come, with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. Who made the heavenly tabernacle? It wasn't made with hands. Human beings didn't make it. And then it explains... That is not of this creation. Do you know the Roman Catholic Church from the times of St. Augustine has taught that the stone that hits the feet of the image represents the church taking over the reins of the political powers of the world to establish a, a kingdom in this world. They don't believe that the stone is the second coming of Christ. It's the church the Roman Catholic Church establishing an earthly kingdom by taking over the political systems of the world. St. Augustine taught that, and it's been taught by the Roman Catholic Church ever since then. But here it says that not of this creation, not, not made with hands, means that human beings have nothing with, to do with the establishment of this kingdom. Notice Mark 14, verse 58, a very similar expression. Mark chapter 14 and verse 58. We heard him say, these are the enemies of Jesus. I will destroy this temple made with hands. Was Jesus born from a mother just like everybody else? Yeah. Was his resurrected body created by human beings? No, 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 no. We hear him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands. And within three days I will build another made without hands. Who made the resurrection body of Christ? The Father did. So in other words, Christ's kingdom will be established supernaturally from outside of human history, not from within. What does the stone represent? 
Well, the stone that hits the image, the stone represents Christ. All across the Bible, the stone represents Christ. Let me give you an example. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 6. Therefore it is also contained in Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. The stone represents the coming of Christ to destroy all human kingdoms and establish a kingdom that shall exist forever. Now let's make some a practical application of this as we end, because we've looked at the broader picture. Now let's come and apply it individually. Is God in absolute control of human history? Yes. Do you think it's pretty complicated for God to be in control of all the events and coordinate all of the events of human history? Think that's pretty complicated? Yeah, let me tell you this, folks that if God is able to manage something as complicated as history, he'll have no problem managing our life if we give our lives into his hands. My little life within history. <laughs> He's willing to guide it, just like he guides something far greater, history. The second lesson that I want to share is that if everything in Daniel 2 has already been fulfilled, what makes you think that the last event is not going to be fulfilled? How certain can we, we, can we be of the second coming of Christ? Absolutely certain. Because if everything's been fulfilled and it was predicted, in some cases thousands of years before it happened, and it was fulfilled to a T, what makes us think that the last event is going to be, isn't going to be fulfilled? We can be certain of the coming of Christ. The last lesson and the most important of all is that we can choose to either fall on the rock or the rock can fall on us. You see, Daniel 2 is speaking about the rock falling and crushing all of the kingdoms. But that also has an individual application. Notice Jesus alluded to this in Matthew 21 verse 44. Go with me to Matthew 21 and verse 44. Jesus, I believe, is, is alluding to this story in Daniel chapter 2. Whoever falls on this stone, speaking about himself, will be broken. What does it mean to fall on the stone and be broken? It means that you come to Christ, Christ shatters that heart of stone, and he gives you a heart of flesh. In other words, you're converted to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Are you catching the nuance? So we can either choose to fall on the stone and be converted, or we can choose to reject it. And like Daniel too, but an individual application be ground to powder when Jesus comes. We can either allow the fire of the Holy Spirit to consume sin, or the fire will consume us. We can either allow the sword of the Spirit to come in, search out sin, and cut it out, or when Jesus comes, the sword will be an instrument of destruction. 
And you know, it's very interesting that in Revelation chapter 1, it speaks about a sword coming out of the mouth of Jesus, but it's a redemptive sword. What does the sword represent? The word of God. It's a redemptive sword in the sense that Jesus wants the sword, Hebrews 4, 12 and 13, he wants the sword to come into our life and cut out sin from the life. It's a redemptive sword. But at the end of the book of Revelation, the sword appears again. And I want to read what it says now out of his mouth. This is at his second coming. He's coming on a white horse with the armies of heaven. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations. That's not at the beginning of the book. It's at the end. Strike the nations and he himself will rule them with the rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. So the bottom line is we can fall on the rock and have Jesus break that old selfish heart that we have. That heart that wants to do our own thing. Or, if we choose not to, that rock, as Jesus said, will grind us to powder. And so our decision, our individual decision within history must be to receive Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord. To allow him to guide our life like he guides history. And in this way, when Jesus returns, we will be able to say, not like most of the individuals in the world, they cry for the rocks to fall on them and they hide in the caves to hide them from the face of the one who is seated on the throne. But they will say, lo, this is our God. We have waited for him. And he will save us. Amen. Is that the desire of your heart? Amen. Praise the Lord. So let's allow Jesus to guide our life within history. Believe me, if he's able to guide something as complicated as history, we have no problem guiding our life as long as we place ourselves in his hands. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for revealing to us these very important things for this period of human history. We ask, Lord, that uh, you will help us not to hide the truth under a bushel, but to proclaim it lovingly, yes, but proclaim it boldly to the world because people are wondering what's happening. People's hearts are failing them for fear as they see what's coming upon this country and what's coming upon the world. And they're looking for answers. And you have given this church the answers. Help us, Lord to share this wonderful message so that people can have peace in their lives in, even in the midst of strife. Be with us as we return to our homes, giving us give us a traveling mercies that we might arrive safely and keep us very close to your side. We pray this in the precious and holy name of Jesus. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.